0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the History of England, Episode 103, War in Brittany. Last week, Edward had arrived home in high dudgeon and full of righteous anger, ready to pillage and burn his way through the treacherous ministers who, according to his world view, had let him down so badly. In their place, he would use the trustworthy, doughty and reliable household staff who had worked with him so closely over the last two years, who had shared his pain and humiliation, and had helped him write all those thoroughly reasonable and sensible letters while he had been away. His anger focused on the Archbishop of Canterbury. As we heard last week, Edward had rather nuttily decided that the Archbishop was out to kill him and bring him down. As you can see, Edward's worldview had become decidedly warped. This time, the magnates and the community of the realm would unwarp it for him, sharpish in the form of a bloody nose. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Robert Stratford was the Chancellor from whom Edward had torn strips already, and been summarily dismissed on Edward's return. Now it just so happens that the Archbishop was none other than Robert's brother John, so unsurprisingly, the Archbishop caught wind of the direction of Edward's thoughts and legged it down to the relative safety of Canterbury. Before you could say full and frank exchange of views, a document had appeared from Edward detailing all the crimes of which he thought Stratford guilty. It's fair to say that it's not a balanced, objective document, Stratford is supposed to have withheld money, encouraged opposition to taxes, impoverished the Crown and abused his authority to his own advantage. While Edward launched his attack on Stratford, he confidently embarked on a new approach to government, using his own household officers to do the things he was convinced had been simple, but that the incompetent and evil guys in England had simply decided they couldn't be bothered to do. Now that he had his top team back in England... Edward was confident things would soon fall back into place. Let me introduce you briefly to two men that play a bit part in today's story then, John Darcy and William Kilsby. These are two excellent examples of professional administrators who have been at Edward's side night and day while he's been abroad. They have his ear and his confidence. Darcy would have been in his late fifties at this time. He'd been an administrator all his life in the service of Edward II Second as well as Edward Third, and he's become the keeper of the privy seal. That means that he looks after the king's private signet ring, which is much, much more important than it sounds. It sounds, frankly, a little menial. John, where have you put my rings? That sort of thing. Of course, we have two seals at this time, and as I think we've discussed before, these are not large aquatic mammals. The great seal is the official seal of state, and the privy seal is the king's personal one. Both of them authorise things to be done, and are a symbol and practical expression of power. This means that John Darcy is always by the king's side. As a youth, I always used to laugh at the role of groom of the stool, a post that appears in the reign of Henry VIII. The thought of building a career handing the king loo paper seemed the most ridiculous thing I could conceive of. But of course it became a most powerful position, because you were constantly at the king's side what better time could there be to press for some special favour on behalf of one of your clients? Which same principle very much held true for John Darcy. The other chap was William Kilsby, steward of the royal household, and like Darcy, a close confidant of the king. Both of these men were not from the magnate class and probably not from the baronial class. They were next to the king because they were good at their jobs. Both became knights and bannerets but from royal advancement, not birth. Now, these days, that's a good thing. In those days, that meant that in the eyes of chroniclers and magnates, they were a bit dodgy. And in all likelihood, they had probably fuelled the King's fury and, and encouraged the view that those blokes in England were rubbish, and given half a chance, they'd put that right. They might well have been slightly horrified that the bluff was about to be called. So between January and March 1341, the king let slip his dogs of tax collection, Darcy and Kilsby amongst them. Sheriffs were replaced, chief justices were appointed for each shire to enforce collection of previous tax subsidies. They hammered the clergy for the collection of a ninth, which was probably illegal. Basically, the king had lost patience with due process and tried to cut out all that faff. While this was going on, a good old slanging match was developing between the King and his Archbishop of Canterbury. Stratford didn't take it lying down, oh dearie me, no. He had plenty of experience of dealing with kings. He was 65 years old, he'd been a bishop and diplomat under Edward II, had represented the old Earl of Lancaster at court in spite of the threat that posed to him. He'd been a Chancellor of England and since 1333 Archbishop of Canterbury. He was no pushover. And in front of him, in his mind's eye, was the saintly figure of Thomas Becket, a light and a model to show him the way. It was his chance to be the new Becket. So Stratford hit straight back with a letter to Edward. This was, in effect, a pamphleting warner, a struggle to influence public opinion. And Stratford was not without his defences. He was, after all, a member of the church at a very high level. Stratford went for the jugular. I mean, all wrapped up in sweetie wrappers and so on, we love you, it wasn't you, it was the evil counsellors and so on. But in the middle, there's this bit. You begin to seize various clerks, peers and other people of the land and to make unseemly process against the law of the land and against the great charter, which you are bound to keep and maintain by the oath at your coronation. Even worse, he reminded Edward of what had happened to his father. And sire, you may remember, by the evil counsel which our lord, your father, had, he caused to be taken against the law of the land and of the great charter, the peers and other people of the land, and put to some shameful death. The message here is pretty straightforward, if a bit hidden. Look, sir, you're acting the same as your dad, and I think we both remember what happened to him, hmm? And note again, yet another generation referring to Magna Carta, as the touchstone of all liberties. Edward wasn't used to this kind of opposition, and he kept straight on going, but it just wasn't happening. The revenues weren't coming in. Against all expectation, it was beginning to look as though there wasn't some magic answer. It slowly began to dawn on him that he'd made a mistake. The lack of money had nothing to do with the relative merits of his household and government in England. It had more to do with genuine problems. So, in desperation, Edward allowed himself to back down and call a Parliament. But he'd be darned if that weasel, the Archbishop, would come. So, on the first day of Parliament, when Stratford duly arrived, he was met at the door and quietly but firmly told to go to the Exchequer to answer some minor charges against him. The next day, the same thing happened. Third day, Stratford patiently presented himself, but this time any pretense was dropped – This time the sergeant-at-arms told him he was no longer invited to this particular party and would he please stop turning up and making everyone feel awkward. But Stratford dug his heels in. If this had been the 60s, he'd have waved a placard above his head, sung We Shall Not Be Moved and quite probably produced some magic mushrooms. But as it was, he insisted that he wouldn't move until the king himself came and told him to go. The king's cronies gathered around the door, Darcy and his son, and kills me. But these guys just made Stratford even stroppier. Then William Bohun came to try and pour oil on the waters, all to no avail. The Archbishop was not to be emolled or manoeuvred. This became the focus of the struggle then. If Edward had to cave in and readmit the Archbishop, he was going to lose a lot of face, and he'd already had to lose a cheek or two by calling the Parliament at all. And then at this point up stood John Warren. A man with a chequered sort of life and reputation, but six generations ago his ancestor had been at the side of William the Conqueror in his great enterprise, and at 54 he was the elder statesman of the magnates in Parliament. He would have been well aware by this stage he was likely to be the last Warren, Earl of Surrey. Here's what he said. Sir King, how goes this Parliament? Parliaments are not wont to be like this. For here, those who should be foremost are shut out, while there sit other men of low rank, who have no business to be here. Such right belongs only to the peers of the land, Sir King, think of this. You'll note the subtle dig at Kilsby and Darcy there. Hard-working, maybe. In with the King, certainly. Members of the club, no chance. And so we come to the difference between Edward II and Edward III. Edward II would have retired hurt, plotted his revenge and taken it. Edward smiled graciously, set up a face-saving process to review Stratford's case, which of course exonerated him. He accepted all the reforms Parliament demanded of him, magnates must only be tried in Parliament, an audit was to be carried out of the King's finances, the great officers of the realms were to be appointed in Parliament. And whilst Stratford was never readmitted to the inner circle of Edward's advisers, he genuinely did play an active role as an elder statesman and adviser. As a result of all this, Edward got a wool tax that would yield £150,000 and set his finances on the path to recovery. The crisis of 1341 was a serious defeat for Edward. It was a defeat not just because he'd been taxing his country without any reward, or just because he'd picked on the wrong guy, or even because he'd imposed changes on the national administration without consent, but because he'd allowed a gap to open up between himself and his magnates, his natural partners. The problem was, they were simply no longer sure quite what role they played. The magnates felt their role was still to fight and protect, and to advise the king. But over the last ten years, this role had become muddied. Edward had recruited large conscript armies, paid for centrally rather than using all the magnets with their traditional feudal levers. It gave him more control. They weren't buzzing off to gather in the harvest all the time and they were more professional soldiers. And then also in the last three years, it had been Edward and his household who had run the show over on the continent. A small coterie of Edward's mates, William Montague, William Clinton, William Bohun, the Nottingham Tunnel lot. People like Arundel and Surrey and the Barons had felt cut out of their natural role. Without getting maudlin, I played tennis quite a lot in my youth and I remember as a lad playing against my father and his group of cunning old crusties. On the many occasions when my youthful ambition had been soundly walloped by said crusty cunning, I didn't always take it that well. I remember on one occasion one of the crusties remarking that it's how we act in defeat that defines us, rather than how we act in victory. Now, my immediate reaction had been to resolve never ever to be in the position of being defeated by an old crusty again, but my rather tenuous point is that the difference between Edward II and Third was that the latter learned from his mistake. In some of those papers against him, Edward II had specifically been described as incorrigible, he kept on coming back and making the same mistakes again. Edward III was corrigible. He had a generosity of spirit that allowed him to admit that he was wrong and move on. He had the intelligence to know when he was beaten, and we should refute the old Victorian idea that he cared nothing for the rights he'd given away, just so long as he could joust and make war, because the final act in this drama came a year later in 1342, when in the absence of a parliament and with his relationships restored, Edward cancelled all these statutes, calmly saying that he had been bullied into it. And this time he judged the mood perfectly. There was not a whimper of protest, and the new reforms were consigned to the dustbin of history. Edward never again allowed himself to forget the role of the magnates. Until his dotage, he never allowed a distance to grow between him and them. A feature of his reign is that while his father, and indeed his successor, insisted on that distance as a feature of their kingship, Edward was happy to be primus inter pares, first amongst equals. All the tournaments and jousting and great councils were part of that process of building the link. He didn't want anyone to forget that he was primus, but given the acceptance of that, the pares bit was fine as well. And from here on, the method of military recruitment also changed. Armies began to be recruited by indenture. Essentially, under this process, The king agreed to play a magnate or lord to provide X number of soldiers of type Y for Z amount of money, rather than raising conscripts centrally. So all the barons and knights were an integral part of the Edwardian army. They had a role, a sense of partnership in this great adventure. As a by-the-by, it means that we begin to see the development of uniforms in the army, in the form of the liveries of each lord with indentured men. A man would be given robes or a jupon to cover his armour with, bearing the Lord's insignia. Some groups went further towards full uniform. The first were the Welsh spearmen, with men from North Wales wearing the white and green of the Black Prince, and the red and white of Arundel's men from Chirkland. Through 1340 and 1341, most of Edward's old strategy came apart at the seams. His biggest so-called allies the Duke of Brabant and the Emperor Ludwig declared they were no longer interested in this alliance and in making war on France. Edward's status as the vicar of the Holy Roman Empire was revoked and a separate peace made with France. So that just left Flanders, who might be waiting for Edward once the current truce with France came to an end. So there he was, our Edward, all truced up and nowhere to go. Scotland remained a running sore. Edinburgh Castle fell to the Scots in April 1341 and in June David II was back from his extended exile in France. With the standard of the Bruce raised again, the Scots came over the border and besieged Newcastle and the war with Scotland was into a new and potentially far more painful phase. Edward duly zipped up north and the Scots melted away into the forests in front of him. So at least, I guess, the siege was lifted, but nothing much else achieved. Edward's Christmas was spent at Melrose Abbey in Scotland, but really that was nothing more than symbolic. There was one feature of the campaign that rings a bell with the war in France, the Jousts of War, or Jousts à l'utrance. In a normal tournament, weapons were blunted, The lance had a thing called a coronal at the end of it. Now, personally, I still wouldn't like one hitting my face with the weight of a charging knight behind it, but it was in principle blunt. In a joust of war, there was no blunting going on. Everything was as sharp as a knife. So you get this rather remarkable event where William Douglas appeared out of the forests and came to Roxburgh Castle with 11 Scottish knights and challenged the Earl of Derby to a joust. Possibly there was something riding on it, no pun intended of course, such as the right to spend Christmas at Melrose Abbey. Either way, the Scots on this occasion got a drubbing, Douglas being carried home after his joust with the Earl of Derby. So this is chivalry for you. Throughout the war, in all but the darkest days of the routier, there is a connection and shared culture between the nobility on each side, an agreed way of carrying on. There is a remarkable adherence to the rules of war, that are understood by all, but could so easily be broken, and very rarely are. The idea that you could just wander out of the forest and be offered a fair fight for fun is another such rule. These days, you'd be offered the services of a psychiatrist. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. Now then, as I say, there's our Edward, all truced up and nowhere to go. But he will be saved from the boredom of endless tournaments and hunting by Brittany. Brittany was a semi-autonomous collective, sorry, a semi-autonomous dukedom, under the homage of the French king. There was a succession dispute brewing, always a cause of trouble in the world medieval. The old duke was getting long in the tooth and would at some point pop his proverbial clogs there were two possible successors. On the one hand, a chap called John Montford. Montford had little to do with Brittany. He was very much oriented towards the French court, with land in the Ile de France, and he knew little of the yokels. Although Montford probably had the best claim, the old Duke didn't appear to like him. We don't know why, but he didn't. So there was another option, his niece, Jeanne de Pontiev. And so he bolstered her claim, marrying her in 1337 to the nephew of Philip VI, a man called Charles of Blois. Charles will be a figure in our story for many years. He was a steer, pious, but also a fine and intelligent soldier who inspired the loyalty of people around him. There is no two ways about it. As far as the Bretons were concerned, Jeanne and Charles were going to inherit, and Montford was a busted flush, and a good thing too. Let me briefly give you a tour of Brittany, and there is a map on the website, of course. Think of it as having two bits, an east and a west. Eastern Brittany was the Gallo-Brittany, very much oriented towards the rest of France. It had prosperous, fertile lowlands and was easy to get to from Paris, and therefore pretty open to any invading army from France. But the west was very different. The interior is inhospitable, rocky and at the time heavily forested, and around it is a narrow coastal fringe where most people live. This is Breton-Brittany rather than Gallo-Brittany, a region dominated by complicated local loyalties and difficult to get at. Breton-Breton they might be, but pro-Montford they were not. They agreed entirely with their eastern cousins on that score. So when the old Duke died in 1341... An assembly of Breton nobles met to discuss the claims. They ruled overwhelmingly in favour of Charles. Game over, presumably. No, game on. Let me introduce you to John Montfort's wife, Jeanne de Flandre. She was in all likelihood the dominant personality in the Montfort camp at the time. She was tough, rich and ambitious. In Froissart's words, she had the spirit of a man and the heart of a lion. Incidentally, I think Froissart was being complimentary with the spirit of a man thing. I don't think he meant that she lay on the sofa all weekend watching footy and had an unfortunate weakness for an excess of wind at inappropriate moments. But I could be wrong. The Countess of Montford had the same ability to inspire fierce loyalty and in the dark days ahead would keep the Montford claim alive. And it was probably her that inspired what happened next and what happened next was that Montfort acted with verve and energy. As the assembly of notables dispersed, Montfort appeared with 200 men outside Nantes, the major town of eastern Brittany, and told them he'd come because he was the new Duke. The inhabitants were confused. Hang on a minute, aren't you supposed to be called Charles? And while they were asking this question, they turned round and found Montfort had squeezed past them and, like an unwanted relative, had ensconced himself in the castle. He did the same in Limoges and seized the ducal treasury. He announced that he would hold a party where all the nobles and towns should come and do homage to him. Now, as it happens, pretty much everyone stayed away, except for the good burghers of Nantes, who saw the opportunity for a free meal. So there was a slightly uncomfortable evening where Montford sat in a half-empty hall, with a bunch of locals concentrating on finishing off the food. But the Montfords were making their point. Possession was, after all, nine-tenths of the law. And so it went on. While Charles of Blois and Philip stared, bemused like scared rabbits, the Montfords went on a tour. They took the major centres of Rennes and Van, and the south and west coasts in July and August, sometimes being accepted by the confused, sometimes having to fight. So by the time Philip and Charles realised what was going on, Montford did in fact have nine-tenths of the country, not just of the law. Charles, of course, complained. Philip then summoned the Parlement de Paris to make a judgement on the best claim and called Montford to attend. Montford, however, got a pretty clear idea of the way the wind was blowing when he went to meet the king. Philip accused him of talking treasonably to the English, which was probably true. He told him to wait until the Parliament had pronounced and not on any account to leave Paris. So Montfort promptly left Paris. As you would, it was pretty clear he was to be held hostage when the Parliament duly returned the King's preferred verdict. In September, the Parliament met and returned the preferred verdict. Charles was to be the official candidate. Montford was to be confiscated off his other lands as well, and 25 years of civil war, death and destruction in Brittany was a go. By October, Montford and Edward had signed a military alliance, and Edward was making plans to come and visit, accompanied by an army of hard-faced archers. For Edward, all this was a real windfall. Brittany was well placed for a naval descent, and it set up a new front in Philip's backyard. Philip's spies told him all about these conversations and at last the French were ready to march. Command of the armies was given to the king's eldest and favourite son, Jean, the Duke of Normandy, a man of whom we'll hear much more. Jean and Charles marched into Brittany in October. When the French armies appeared in front of the eastern Breton towns, they took one look and said, Ah, yes, that's right, Charles. They threw open their gates and invited them in. In Nantes, the inhabitants told Montfort this was exactly what they intended to do when Jean and Charles arrived there, so this was going to be awkward. So Montfort negotiated while he had something to negotiate with. He was given a safe conduct to Paris and he and the Duke of Normandy hopped off to talk Turkey. Before you could say Jack Robinson, the safe conduct had been repealed and Montfort was imprisoned in the Louvre. At which point the Countess of Montford came into her own. There was going to be no rolling over as far as she was concerned, though she was dealt a bad hand. Places like Rennes, big rich towns in the east, were set to declare for Charles, so she had to run for the west. But the Countess made a stand at Henniball in southwestern Brittany. Meanwhile, the Montford's two-year-old son was declared as the nominal head of the family should his dad be put to death in Paris and her noble ally, Aumarie de Clison, was sent to England to get help. When Clison arrived, Edward was having a party, the largest tournament of his reign at Dunstable. It was attended by over 250 knights, and Edward fought as what's described as a simple knight. Edward had a love of symbols and grandeur, and at this event everything was embroidered with the motto It is as it is, a habit we'll see repeated with the order of the garter. Anyway, Clison fixed up a deal with Edward, which would see Edward arrive with an army as soon as the truce with France expired in June 1342. Obviously, the problem was to get there before the Countess's cause was swept away completely. And as ever, they struggled with the logistics of getting fleet and army together, but in May, with the news of the fall of Brittany's biggest town, Rennes, a teensy Vinci army arrived in Brittany under the command of one Walter Manny. We're talking 34 men-at-arms and 200 mounted archers, and even the redoubtable Manny could do little, as Charles of Blois invested Van and Hennebon. Resistance in Hennebon was fierce, with the Countess to be seen riding through the streets of Hennebon, haranguing her men from a charger with every attempt to take the town by storm, thrown back. But outside, the French spread out in small detachments across Brittany and started the killing and looting of the inland towns and villages. About this time, by the way, a new Pope took over in Avignon, taking the name of Clément. Just in case we had any doubts about the quality of papal independence and morality, here was a man of princely tastes, great style and richness. Now, as far as he was concerned, France was Christendom. Edward was a rebel and aggressor. At his inauguration, Knees Up, the Duke of Normandy took the honour of holding the reins of the Pope's horse and sitting at the Pope's right-hand side. So, point taken. It's no wonder the English deeply distrusted papal negotiators. Meanwhile in the south-west, England had some success during the truce, when the inhabitants of Bourg in the Saint-Ange threw out their French garrison. But with the end of the truce, the bishop of beauvais launched an offensive that essentially saw ingham and the english pinned back into their heartlands around bordeaux in brittany following montfort's treatment in paris and the blatant disregard for his safe conduct the bretons now also distrusted the french and in western brittany were more reluctant to open their gates to them but without a proper english army in the field the french were dominant in july van surrendered and the inhabitants of the besieged town of Auray were reduced to eating their horses. Finally, finally, the English started to arrive. The Earl of Northampton, William Bohun, arrived with a small army of 2,400 men, split roughly fifty-fifty between men-at-arms and archers. Charles of Blois immediately lifted the siege of Brest and withdrew. Northampton followed him and started the siege of the small town of Mokulay, In September 1342, Charles of Blois returned to raise the siege with a substantial army, 3,000 cavalry, 1,500 Genoese and a large local contingent of Bretons. We don't know how many that made his army in total. Estimates go up to 30,000, which is clearly daft. But whatever, it was several times the size of the English army and its Breton allies. So finally, after dancing around their handbags for the last five years, the English and the French were going to get it on as it were. Northampton left enough men to keep an eye on the garrison of Mochley and drew up the rest of his men across the main road at the top of a rise, so that to relieve the garrison, Charles would have to get through him. At his back was a wood. In the centre of the English line, Northampton placed his armoured knights and men-at-arms, not as cavalry as had been the tradition for so long, but dismounted. And on the flanks he placed his archers, each with thirty-six arrows. In front of the line, taking a leaf from the Scottish book at Bannockburn, they dug a hidden trench, and then they waited. Charles came on in three columns, each of them considerably bigger than Northampton's army. The first were the Bretons recently recruited, probably most kindly described as irregular infantry, the kind of people who wore red shirts in the original Star Trek series. As they approached the English, they were met by a storm of arrows, and they ran away a conference took place on the French side about what to do next. And as a result, on came the next column, this time in a mounted attack. Horses fell into concealed traps. The same storm of arrows took out the horses and chaos ensued. Only about 200 managed to reach the English men-at-arms. But for a moment the line was broken, until Northampton committed his reserve and then captured the commander of the second wave. There was now a considerable pause, but finally the third column came on. Northampton now faced a real problem. His archers were almost out of ammo. His men were exhausted from two waves of attacks. The attacking column had extended its line this time beyond the English line, so they were in danger now of being flanked. But Northampton wasn't ready to give up. So instead, they retreated into the wood and lined all four sides into what you might describe as a hedgehog. Charles's forces were nonplussed. They couldn't attack on horse, as the wood. As they approached, the archers used their final ammo carefully, picking off individual targets. Those who did get in the wood found it difficult to link up and use the advantage of their greater numbers. And so Charles called it all off and called the retreat, and is next heard of in the Siege of Hennibal. So Morlaix isn't on the roll call of famous battles of the Hundred Years' War, Cressy, Poitiers, Agincourt. So why cover this poxy, two-bit, no-good battle? Well, there are two answers to that. Firstly, I like battles. I'd hate to be in one, you understand, but at the safe distance of over 600 years, I'm good with them. But secondly, here's our first sight of the key attributes of English tactics forged on the battlefield of Scotland, for which the French take 20 years to develop an effective response. Here's an English commander's checklist of key rules. Number 1. You fight on foot, not mounted. Not in the chivalric tradition, but stuff that. 2. Wait for them to attack you, they're bigger than us. 3. Choose the ground carefully, and don't fight unless you've done so. 4. Archers on the flank, men-at-arms in the middle. I should note that the positioning of the archers, by the way, is a matter of deep controversy. I have gone for this approach, but there are equally valid views that say that archers were often dispersed amongst the men-at-arms, or put in small pockets along the line, but I'm assuming we don't want to go into this controversy in any great depth. There are a couple of other wrinkles about Morlaix, specifically worth noting. The French attacked in columns, which was handy for the archers, so they didn't need to worry about range, and packed together as an easy target. And secondly. It's just interesting to note that the English had learnt the lessons of Bannockburn and learnt them well. Finally, in October, Edward arrived in Brittany. Before long, most of southern Brittany was his again. The town of Vannes held the army up, but raids again into the surrounding countryside broke the morale of Charles' forces and captured a number of towns and castles. But then in December, Jean, the Duke of Normandy, finally arrived with a far larger army. Edward had no more than 5,000 men. Stuck outside Van, Edward was now vulnerable. Jean entered Nantes, preventing it falling to a force commanded by the Earl of Warwick, and then advanced on Edward. The clever money would have been on the French, though in the light of Cressy, who knows. And then, remarkably, the French agreed to a truce. A what? Yes, a truce. Overwhelming force, just driven off your enemies from a key castle... Enemy stranded with nowhere to run, seems like the obvious choice. And the terms of that truce were remarkably generous. It basically said everyone held on to what they had at the time, which meant all Edward's gains stayed with the Montford faction. And the Montford faction was basically saved from extinction. It also said that John Montfort should be released, which didn't happen, but hey. This truce of Malstroy brought to an end the first phase of the war in Brittany, and gave both French and English another chance to draw breath. The Countess of Montford took a ship for England, but although she lived for another 30 years, she went mad soon after arriving and played no further part in the war. So with another truce, this seems like a good place to leave it. Until next week then, as ever, grateful thanks to everyone who comments on the website, or iTunes, or joins the Facebook group, and indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone, and have a great week.